What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Cheeky Midweeky, where we are making strength and conditioning not boring anymore. And this conversation with Coach Carmen Bott is going to be anything but boring. The main topic is going to be ACLs, you know, RTP, that whole nine. But um, Carmen is not shy at sharing her opinion, and neither am I. So sit back. We both shared our coffee cups beforehand. So if you're watching, we salute you if you're listening. Uh, hopefully you have some coffee because it's early in the morning for us when we're recording. And Carmen, introduce yourself to anybody that maybe not know who you are. You are a veteran of Strength Coach Network, so thank you for being on. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm an old lady now, guys. I'm uh, been doing this since 1998, so over 25 years. And my first contract with a, was with a women's college basketball program. After that, I went over to a university and helped a team um, win two national titles. And during that time um, with the university, we actually didn't have any ACL tears. But at the time, I didn't realize that that was amazing. <laughs> um, I'm actually realizing it more now, um, having fast forward time. And then, you know, in between that time and, and where I'm at now, I'm, I've done work with all kinds of different athletes and not just female basketball players, lots of football players, lots of wrestlers. Um, even triathletes and cyclists, but they don't tend to have this type of injury. And so I've sort of circled back to um, a roster of clients that are rehabbing uh, their knees. Sadly, it's a, it's a huge mind F you, you know, the rest of that word mm. for these people um, because the injury is, is very catastrophic and there's a lot of doubt and, and whatnot. So that's where I'm at now. If you catch me in a year, I might be on to a new project, but um, I'm knee deep in in, in rehab. Um, pun intended knee, or no? Yeah, yeah, maybe. The pun was intended, folks. The pun is always intended. Um, <laughs> so with the ACL stuff, like for us at Towson in 2019, we had five in the year, and that was the most we had ever had. That was a statistical right. outlier. And there was contact injuries where it was like mm -hmm. direct contact. It was an O lineman got hit three different ways, running back got hit three different ways. The other two were what you would call or, uh, the upper body perturbation, and then one of them was just a pure um, non contact made a cut. My first mm -hmm. question to you, from what you've learned over your years, is why is why is it not considered? a contact injury when the upper body gets hit and they call it that perturbation because that definitely affects what happens. That's a great question. Uh, classifying injuries is certainly not um, research I've ever conducted, um, like survey injury surveillance type research that's usually conducted by athletic trainers. And it's usually, um, you know, like they put things into categories based on body type. And if that body part or not body type, sorry, body part. So ankle, knee, hip, shoulder, etc. And if that body part is hit or contacted, then it's a contact injury at the ankle, for example. So I think it's just an oversight and it's a pretty rudimentary approach. I think what needs to be done is more video analysis after injury to talk a little bit more about um, the forces that might have been involved, the biomechanical factors that might be involved and to help us understand better why some athletes are more vulnerable than others. But it's something done that, that I can see, at least in the literature. Because <clears throat> that was something that did drive me crazy and 
that year, it wasn't only just me, you know, you go back and if you look in the, you know, archives of 2019 at Towson, there was lacrosse, soccer, women's bat, like it was kind of, it was everywhere. And a majority of them were playing on a a specific field, but it was another, a women's lacrosse player was bending over to get something, got pushed, hyperextended the leg. Right. And it just, it definitely, like you said, it not only can mess with the athlete, but I think we need to mention the fact that how much it actually messes with the strength coach too, because it can start to make you wonder if you're actually good at your job. Oh, for sure. I mean, and the thing about all these sports you're mentioning is they're all invasive. They're all contact sports. Um, they're collision sports, even like women's lacrosse. It's not the same as men's. The rules are different, but there's incidental contact by all means. And, you know, I don't think we necessarily have the appreciation for the forces involved in some of these sports. And then you couple that with turf Right. So imagine just deciding, okay, I'm going to put my buddy in on the beach and bury his foot in some some sand, add a little bit of cement to that Um, foot's nice and secure. And then I'm going to run up to him and smash him in the in the chest and see how his ankle handles and that, you know, and see how his knee handles that. Right. Um, You know, I think maybe what needs to happen is laboratory type experimentation, obviously um, using surrogate type limbs but having these forces really measured um like you said where maybe the knee or the ankle itself isn't the joint that's being perturbed but other areas but when that that foot is planted and planted in turf with cleats how is that different than sticking your body in a you know in some cement and pushing trying to push him over right like if the foot's not going to move something has to give you know, and the ligamentous structures can only handle so much force before they rupture. I mean, every every soft tissue in the body has a strain threshold. And the strain threshold can be improved with strength training. We know that. <laughs> but if the timing of that event and the forces of that event are high, then there it goes. And so there's a lot of things that can't be necessarily prevented and i know that you hate that term and i do too because all we can do as practitioners is mitigate risk and we can do that by making sure you know athletes aren't exhausted when they go into those those cuts at the end of practice that practice is designed in such a way to foster you know maybe the higher velocity movements done earlier on just like in the weight room right we're not going to do our power cleans at the end of the workout so why, you know, at practice, are we doing it, doing a lot of rapid change of direction at the end of practice? I'm not saying that athletes aren't fatigued in games, but there are there are best practices that could be employed across the board to minimize the things that we can control to some degree. But there's a lot we don't know. You talked about surfaces, and that's kind of a hot topic right now, at least in the NFL, because Aaron Rodgers tore his Achilles. I don't know what the Achilles rupture number is right now in the NFL, nor do I know to compare it to years past. So I'm going to kind of not comment on that, nor do I know the number Mm -hmm. of ACLs. But I know that more and more people in the NFL have at least been posting on social media saying, enough's enough, NFL. We need to be playing on grass. Does that really matter? Because from what I've read in the research, it seemed like it was – and I, I, my research on it is in 2020. So they happen on grass and artificial turf, right? Like it's just this NFL schedule to me is what kind of would seem that athletes are maybe overly stressed, not sleeping adequately. 
and I also would say, and I, I reached out to somebody who texted me about it in the preseason and camp, they're doing the survival shuffle. As Dan Paff says, they're not actually doing max effort because they're trying to just get through camp. They want to get through their healthy. And then now all of a sudden games one game two, they're doing maximal effort for the first time. And now it's almost stressing their bank account more than they're used to. Does so that's yeah, a lot that I, mean, I said. What do you think about the turf and grass? Well, I, I think you're right. I think the jury's out. And I don't know if we can put all our eggs in that basket and just blame a surface as the culprit or the the main factor that's affecting these these athletes. I think what we need to do is look um, at medical history and we need to look at uh, medication use. There's a lot of evidence to support um, certain medications that can affect tendons and can affect the ligaments. So getting that health history on athletes is important as part of your just risk stratification. And then there is the other piece you talked about was underloading and you're, you're absolutely right. So we have like all kinds of problems. We have the coach that overloads and camp and wants to see if they're man enough and ready to engage in, you know, the sport. And then we have the other types of coaches that don't load the athlete enough in camp and then expect them to perform at the level they should be. What's missing is, is like proper simulations, you know, and it's, it's really about the dose of that simulation. It's not so much about not doing or not doing the simulation. So simulation in sports psychology is just simulating the environment. So that's a very common word that test pilots use and, you know, um, people in military, they have to simulate what they are going to face because if they don't they aren't psychologically prepared but then they're not physically prepared so what needs to be really well understood are the mechanical load factors involved in let's say a 20 yard entry to a 45 degree cut that's going to have different forces than a five yard entry to like a post or a corner route that's going to have different forces than a 15 yard entry to a 90 degree cut, which would be, you know, just an out route. So, you know, making sure that athletes can do those things. And then, of, which is, seems like common sense. And then on the, the defensive side in football, if that's what we're talking about, you know, then they've got a lot more unpredictable movement patterns, right? So if you're not reacting unpredictably, um, to a whatever stimulus and the stimulus has to be visual can't be auditory it has to be the same right so you know sort of back to your points around agility like what what are we doing when we put a bunch of cones out on a field exactly when we're asking someone to precisely run to here and then do this when in a in a sports situation it's really not that tidy no, not even a little bit. And that's where I feel like that's what it gets my gears so grinded is just the fact that it's like we're doing these kids such a massive disservice in the name of serving them. And it's like, how do we raise awareness in a in the best way possible to help ultimately sport coaches be the ones that make the decisions? Is it as simple as, you know, what you talked about that one last time we talked Um and if anybody hasn't listened to that, I'm going to link it down below so you can listen to the other conversation. But you talked about like you were having beers with the uh, the head coach. Like, is it just that simple, but not that easy? Or 
how do we solve the the problem? Yeah, I mean, performance staff personnel do need to work very, very closely with with the head coach and share ideas and and share perspective. And if there's no communication, it often you know boils down to that. Then how can we expect? I mean, the sport coach has to. They have a huge job, right? They're managing a roster. They're managing tactics somewhat managing technical development. So they're not thinking about the stuff we're thinking about. And so you need to make it simple. You need to make it digestible. You need to have actionable solutions, not just complaining behind their back about, oh, this is stupid, or these are the problems. But then at the same time, the coach, you know, does need to be open to collaboration amongst you know, performance staff and, and things that, you know, may, they have to be able to admit that this, Hey, isn't necessarily in their wheelhouse in terms of their knowledge and expertise. So it does require a certain type of, of person to allow an individual to come in and and offer that advice and offer that feedback, maybe handle a portion of practice or, or whatever. But what I, what I notice over my years of, um, coaching and this is a little bit um maybe naughty to say but uh I've been doing this for a long time so when I started I went to every practice and I was on the court with the athletes doing their warm-ups doing movement sessions all the time like that's just that's just what I knew that's just what I was taught by my mentors and then I started to notice a shift over time that strength and conditioning became about running programs and who has the best program and who can use these like really fancy methods and who brags most about their data and their metrics and their vertical jump scores when you know you got kids that are like 18 that have never trained that are jumping 36 inches like they're just athletes genetic freaks it's nothing to do with their training you know when they should be on the floor with the kids teaching them how to move teaching them how to absorb shock how to absorb forces teaching them how to redirect force teaching them how to hold tension and then taking all those concepts and principles in the weight room out onto the field and you're teaching the same concepts now using different drills now we're we're going to do some change of direction mechanics these are the key things that I'm looking for. And I'm just not seeing that. And I don't know if it's a case that the strength coaches are just too busy um, or if they don't want to leave the weight room because it's raining. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I would like them to giddy up. I would like them to get out there. I wonder hearing you say that. I mean, I do too, because I think part of the problem is having, again, quoting Dan Paff or Stu McMillan, they have a PhD in the weight room and they have a GED on the field. Like that's probably problem number one. But then problem number two is, are these new high performance roles, whether it's an athletic uh, athletic trainer or they're reporting to the athletic director and they want numbers, they want data, they want and now And so we're forced as strength coaches to do those things. But who created that? Who created that? Like athletic directors don't know anything about data. They know about spreadsheets and budgets. Yeah, they might like spreadsheets and- Yeah, like who started this problem? (laughs) Who was the person that started giving athletic directors data? Whoever they are, send them my way, okay? So that's, I think that's the issue. And that became like normative practice. That became like the way people should practice. 
like I, I said, I mean, I was on, I would go to camp. Like my, one of my best friends is the head of performance at UBC and he goes to, and he mostly, he played, he played D1 football at Utah. He's, he's around my age. He's been doing this as long as I have. And the guy's on the field at every football game. He's on the field at rugby games. He travels with the football team. Like he's oh, integrated into yep. the staff. You know, and so if athletic directors could figure out that that seems to be the best practice and they may need to hire at an institution six different performance people that are specialists in particular categories of sport, right? Collision contact team, that's a category of sport, right? Form mm. sport would be a category like gymnastics. High mm. skill sport would be like baseball, maybe basketball. It's, you know, but basketball could probably be in with... um you know, with football and, and lacrosse, because it's a, it's a high level contact sport. It, when I lived in Malaysia, we did that at the Institute that I was at. Um, we had different strength coaches in charge of the sport category. They were performance staff. And then underneath that strength coach hat, we had um, local um, strength and conditioning specialists working under us. And we were teaching them sort of more Western methodology, if you will, you know, and then we had a head of performance that we were all sort of reporting to, but not really. And it, again, wasn't so much about the data. We had a testing lab. We had a physiology lab that did run our testing, but we worked with those physiologists as well to, to actually come up with new tests and new ways of measuring because some of the ways of measuring at the time were irrelevant to to the sport like we're not going to make the badminton team that's going to the 2000 olympics run the b test <laughs> right but we did we developed a test where they started in the middle of the court where they had to they had to move like in a kind of a almost like a star pattern right so they move um on a 45 and back to center they move straight ahead back to center on another 45 back to center and we had we had, did like a repeat like a riet type repeat sprint analysis and a performance decrement test and then we also looked at the biomechanics of their movement on top of the performance of the test which again is also missing in acl rehab on the discharge criteria they're saying oh well if the hop test symmetry is is within 90% or 90 like within 5% difference then that athlete's good to go yet we get them on a force plate and it's way different but I'll be honest a highly trained strength coach that looks at people all day long I can see it I can see the difference and yeah. and then the force plates are there to confirm the bias that I have that I've created with my own eyes so I know I'm kind of ranting right now but that's kind of where I see things a bit at. And I would like to encourage the next generation of performance people coming up to, to spend more time coaching. I think I feel the same way, which is probably what, like I've been probably saying it now for at least two years, <clears throat> mm -hmm. maybe three, maybe two, 2021 or yeah, I guess whatever 2021. Right. But like around then I've just been saying like, look, I think the pendulum has swung to, I think we've gotten to the point where we're so data driven that eventually it's got to start driving back because at what point does the sport coach feel like they don't even have control of their team? Like if there's all these people saying, Oh, do this and do this. And it's just like, well, what do you need me for? You need me to just be the go out and recruit and talk to boosters. Like what's my job really then? And could you imagine Justin going to watch the game and getting information that way? 
It's a novel idea. Or right. Or hey, going to practice and watching the kids that you're working with practice, getting information that way. Like, I'm sorry, we don't necessarily need to test everybody up the yin yang to determine whether or not they are ready to perform. I had an athlete who was on the USA national team for wrestling. She wrestled at the university here because we are, um, we have a very powerful women's wrestling program internationally. We produced, we've produced several Olympians. And so this athlete started with me when she was 18 years old. She was five months post-op from ACL repair. Is this the one that you presented on in the, uh... no, this is another one. It's a different, this is a different athlete. Um, the one I presented on is was Canadian athlete. This is American girl. And she, um, I kind of, I probably shouldn't say this publicly, but I kind of snuck her into my training group with the Canadian national team and, and started working with her. I don't work with the program anymore. So I guess I can say this. So she just really wanted to train with the, with the top kids and she's a great kid. So, you know, why not add another like amazing personality to a group? Right. It's just totally join the party. Let's party. Let's go. (laughs) So we started just training at five months and we trained and we trained and we trained. Guess how many tests I did with her to return her to wrestling. I'm going to say three. Oh, no, I didn't do any. I just trained her. I trained, I trained her on everything. We trained her neck. We trained her cleans. We trained her squats. We trained her jumps. We did plyometrics. We did movement. We did everything. Everything that you would normally do in a very con- comprehensive holistic training plan. We monitor fatigue. We do a lot of that. Fatigue monitoring, um, wellness monitoring, things like that. How do you do that? I'm uh, just with some basic questionnaires, like, you know, like, how, or talking to people. That right. works, you know, or are you okay? <laughs> that, that works too. Um, noticing noticing works as well like hmm, that person's in a shit ass mood today i wonder what's going on and then conversation right so yeah you know just just and making notes right objective notes that didn't really or sorry subjective notes rather that didn't really necessarily match what was going on the next day but just collecting information talking to the kids anyway long story short a year later she did go um to the olympic training center in colorado springs she trains there all the time and would get ready for national events and they tested her in the lab because i didn't have access to any of that at the time force plates and whatnot they, they, she had zero asymmetries left to right force absorption hmm. same propulsion same time on the ground same and they did several different jump tests. And the strength coach at the time, he's no longer with USC Wrestling, called me. He's like, what did you do with this girl? I said, we just trained. <laughs> Honestly, we just trained. But you know, the czar is plyometrics. We did. We I've always done plyometrics with my athletes because I was taught. I mean, I had so many great mentors looking back. I had one mentor who was a weight, my weightlifting coach. He he actually used to advise um, Al Vermeil when Al was with the Bulls. Yeah, he was like his main advisor, but he's just sort of like a local guy that not a lot of people know about, um, unless you're in the weightlifting community. And then I had a couple of really high-level track coaches teach me plyometrics, and one of them is is not is not the person, but one of them is a new business partner who studied and worked very closely with Dan Fath at Altis. We have a few pretty good people where I, where I'm from, um, pretty good practitioners. And so I just like went to every single clinic that they ever put on, but every clinic I went to Justin, believe it or not, was practical. Yeah. 
And we actually had to do stuff. Like my, when I worked with my weightlifting coach, um, I'll never forget this. I was about ready to squat and he wanted me to like test that day and he slapped me. I squatted the most I've ever squatted in my life. I don't recommend to your readers to slap you. Please don't do that. But, it, you know, he's so old school. That's my point. He was like so old school. I can't, I'm thinking to myself, holy, I can't believe he slapped me like right on the butt. Oh, he slapped you on the butt. He even... Yeah, like on the hip like, butt area. Just like whoosh, like a horse, you know? So I have yeah. a. F- I'll, I'm going to interrupt for one second no, interrupt, because please. my two, two of my former assistants, uh, Kate Correa and Logan Fletcher, Kate. Now she went to VCU and Logan just got promoted at Towson. Anyways, they were, <laughs> Kate is a power lifter and she had like a heavy squat and she asked for a spot. Right. And so okay. like, so Logan, okay, he's sitting down he goes out and then out of nowhere, he just freaking slaps her back. And like, Cause she's yeah. filming it. Cause she has a coach too. And like, she's like super startled then has to get out of the bar and squat. And she got a turn. Yeah. She's like, what was that about? He's like, you said you wanted a slap. She's like, I wanted a spot. <laughs> did it work? She got it. <laughs> she did. Okay. Well, but that, you know, like, okay. The metaphor behind that is like, maybe I'm not saying slap people, please don't take it that way and run with this. But disclaimer, do not. Do you think that maybe? Do you think that maybe elevating an athlete's arousal level as a coach in a subtle way oh. is important? But that's back to like that's coaching and shouting at somebody and doing the rah rah speech isn't no, coaching. That actually is like performing for yourself. It's mm. pretty egocentric, if you if mm. you ask me. Um, and you don't. There's only t- certain times you want to do that, right? If you're doing a jump test, you want to arouse the athlete. But if they're about to run through a tunnel to play a game, that is not the time to be screaming and yelling. You want to go into that situation like calm. Yeah, but like you said, that's that's more about the that's more about the coach. And I mean, you've talked about that at length about cultivating self awareness. Like that's kind of also been like a big rock of yours. Yeah, I think when I went down the rabbit hole of sports psychology, that was one thing that I really took from the courses I, I, I learned from and was that we can't really intervene with mental skills without first establishing a high degree of self-awareness. So in other words, it's hard for any of us to make changes to our behavior if we're not aware of the dumb stuff we do. That's, and we all do but that, dumb isn't stuff. that the first step of the of the twelve step program? From what people keep saying, it's like you have to totally. first admit, like, "Hey, my name is blah blah blah, and I made blah blah blah." Like, you have to admit it. Full disclosure, yeah, you do. You have to admit it, but sometimes we don't always know what our it's called our background of obviousness is. Sometimes we don't know, so we need other people around us, like loving a critic. You call it right? Yeah, that 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 will tell us, but there's a lot of people again in our industry that just surround themselves with people that agree with them. Oh yeah, that's a great idea. Do that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Do that. Right. And it's just like high fives all around and, uh, or slaps on the butt <laughs> slaps. On, yeah. Butt slapping mm-hmm. versus, you know, maybe you should look at it that way. Maybe you should, like, I tend to like seek out people that are skeptical and mm. that will poke holes in the ideas that I have. Cause I am pretty idealistic and I am optimistic, like a bit overly optimistic. So it's nice to have people around that are like, mm, you know, did you maybe consider this? Did you maybe 
think about that. Oh, no. Whoops. Okay, back to the drawing board. That's okay. You know, for the people that are younger in this industry listening to this, it is okay to to not know. It is okay to ask for help. It is okay to collaborate with people. Is it okay? It's okay to be the dumbest person in the room. I work at a university that's pretty much on par with MIT, and I feel like the dumbest person in the room every every faculty meeting. But the research staff, like these people are brilliant. But that's that's okay. I'm okay with that. I know my role. <laughs> Talking about research and getting back on the ACL yeah. stuff, sure. let's talk about, you know, the tw like when I reached out to you and we put out a video before on the, the 12, 12 week hop testing. And for me, it's just the whole quick break from the show to remind you to hit that like and subscribe button. It helps us out and it helps you be notified when we have new content get released. So again, please hit that like and subscribe button if you enjoy this content. And with that, let's get back to the show. I don't know the fact that it's just, they haven't done anything. The athletes that undergo that surgery have not done mm -hmm. any, you use the word plyometric. First of all, I don't think enough people understand that plyometric is different than jump training. Like there has to be the eccentric yeah. isometric concentric phase. And there is that when you're taking off, whether it's the single leg, the triple, or even now that the medial has been added. Yeah. How, how can we change this for the better with, more and more strength coaches, athletic trainers, physical therapists, surgeons, what needs to be done? Well, we need to stop using hop testing as discharge criteria and looking at limb symmetry index. Athletes are asymmetry, are asymmetrical, mm -hmm. like most of the time. And the current Melbourne criteria is a 5% difference at discharge. There are labs uh, uh, all over the world that could show you up to a 13% difference and possibly no risk to injury because other metrics are so high and well-established. How so this, assessed? I, this I, How assessed sorry? for anybody that's listening or watching? Oh, like this what? is assessed on force plates. Like that would be the like goal. Like a jump the or with standard. a... Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Goal, the jumping, jump testing, single leg jump testing. Um, Double leg land or single leg land? Both. Yeah, okay. both. So if you have dual force plates where you can measure the legs independently, you could do a double leg land, right? Oh, yeah. Or you, yeah. Or you could do like in my lab at the university, I have uh, four decks so they yep. can double leg land, but I can still get the data on both legs. Which is if I awesome. can, I can, it is, it, it, it gives us things. You know what I think that does for a newer practitioner is helps you see the things that people that have been coaching thousands of hours can already see right like a um a lack of ability to absorb force that sort of thing because usually you'll you you know if you watch carefully you you can see differences between left and right so back to your question what can we do well we need to shift our focus away from outcome testing outcome testing is how far did they jump how high did they jump how far did they jump three times? And then measuring that against the non-operative side. Like we got to get away from that. And what we need to come back to is looking at kinematics, looking at how people move, right? So if you have somebody do a hop on the spot 
at 14 weeks, 15 weeks, so, so the mid-stage of rehab. I don't use weeks, by the way. I use early stage, mid-stage, late stage, period. Hmm. I just returned a guy to collision sport at five months post-op. I returned him. I did in April. He's a 30-year-old professional athlete. He's a big boy, literally. He made the choice. I, it, I told him what the risks were. He made the choice. He is now eight and a half months post-op and injury-free, and he competes every weekend internationally in a very, very rigorous sport. It's kind of a mic drop moment, no? Right. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I, you know, I, and I'm not saying this to, to brag or to say, look what I did. I think this is pretty special um, yeah. on his end. I think we tried to do everything possible. Um, but going back to my first point, as soon as somebody can weight bear on one leg, and again, it's not about weeks, it's when they're able to do that then you need to start getting them to do single leg squats on one leg, but it's not about hitting 10 reps. That's what all the research, Justin, <laughs> like my office floor right now is covered in articles. Of Anybody which that's most listening, of them are she's going got, yeah, she's got a big into the garburator or shredder or whatever destroys things because it's so focused on this outcome data and not focused enough on movement screening. Now, having said movement screening, movement screening is a shitstorm all of its own. Okay. <laughs> there is no movement screen that can tell us really anything definitive about risk of injury. But what it can tell us is that someone moves like crap. Yep. And we're not going to load that crappy movement and we're not going to put speed on that crappy movement. Okay. That, that we know. And so when I'm teaching movement analysis um, qualitatively to my students, I'm like, this is why we do it. It doesn't predict anything. It doesn't give us insight into whether or not someone's going to get hurt. It tells us whether or not we can load that movement. So that's why early on in the rehab, you have them do a single leg squat and you start looking at the ankle, the foot, barefoot. They've got to be bare feet. I, I also do all my rehab barefoot. Almost all of it, even outside. Then we look at the knee. Then we look at the hip. We look at the trunk. We look at the posture. We look from the front view. We look from the side view, right? And we have just a basic checklist and we look for things. And then we coach them. And then we rescreen them. Because if you coach them, you tell them exactly what to do, then you know if they own that movement. It's there. It's in the vault. Now you just need to reinforce the correct movement. The problem with movement screening is that, well, the way that Greg Cook sort of suggested, he said, okay, don't tell them how to do this. Just see how they naturally move. Right? <laughs> what? It doesn't so make any sense at all. I'm so right? glad you said so, that. <laughs> right? So it's like, what? That's mean. First of all, that's just mean. Full disclosure, we didn't do that at Iowa. We're like, fuck that. We literally printed off a sheet and was like, here's pictures of it. I'm going to tell you what you need to do. Show yeah. me if you know how to do this. Not because like. Okay. Totally. And so you want to bias them a little bit. Like when I did my master's thesis, I taught the kids how to get the best possible vertical jump score so I could actually test their power versus do they know how to jump because it's a skill, right? You got to consider all movement is skill. So an overhead squat with a dowel is a skill. Teach them the skill, then see if they can get into it. See what kind of range of motion they have. See what kind of compensations they have. 
And you're going to make notes on this and then coach the, you know, what out of these people, coach them, coach them, coach them on how to do these things really well. And then you can rescreen their movement or you rescreen their movement in their training session with you. You're mm. like, oh, okay, that's cleaned up. That's better. That's improved. And you just keep building, building them, building them. What I'm seeing in ACL rehab is that at a certain stage, we need to test the drop jump. What? So you're going to push someone off like a box, right? They're falling. They're falling. They're falling. They smash into the ground. You've not taught them how to absorb load. You've not taught them. You haven't even prepared them to absorb that level of load. Now it's like eight times body weight and they're doing this on one leg. Mm -hmm. Except Justin, the criteria for the drop test is to be able to leg press twice your body weight on one leg. I don't know any athletes that can leg press twice their body weight on one leg. And what athlete actually leg presses? Correct. Nobody. We don't give a leg press in your gym. No, like at at any And what's your depth? What are you calling? Is it femur parallel? Is it hamstring parallel? What do we... They say 90 degrees. So, I mean, it's just bizarre to me. Like these are separate skills. And so the literature calls these... They call these progressions. Okay, I'll give you a good progression. Here's a progression for your audience. Please do. Please do. This is a progression. Now I'm getting stressed. Okay, so you have kids, and they did they learn to walk? Are they walkable? My kids are your walkable. Kids? Yep. They can walk. Okay, they good. They sure can. Okay, so this is how they learn to walk. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I'm going to nail this. Okay, so they pulled themselves up. Mm-hmm. And they held on to something and then they kind of rocked a bit and they did that for a while. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. Cool. And then they were like, holy shit. If I hold on to this couch, I can do this and I can move like <laughs> sideways and forwards, but I'm holding on to shit. Okay, cool. That's step two. And then three, they let go and they walked a couple steps and they fell over. Is that what happened? Kind of something yeah, a little like bit. that. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, they walked four more steps and they didn't fall over and then five and then six and then they were walking and then they were running. That's like, I teach growth and motor development at the university. So we go through like these stages of motor learning with kids. And if we go back to that information and we think about rehab and we think about progressions, if you are having an athlete do a pogo leap, so two foot pogo and you tell me that the next progression is a single leg hop. You are now in the category of, oh my God, you have no idea what you're doing to me. Correct. Because correct, they're completely different. And if you actually tried this shit yourself before you taught it to other people, you would know that there is a gap between these two motor skills that is this wide. So back to the problems in the research is that we've got people that are good at research, people that collect data, people that are in a lab collecting this information, which is great. We just don't have enough people on the ground doing good rehab plans and understanding load, mechanical load and understanding motor behavior, biomechanics and how they relate to learning skills, motor skills and progress it progress in a it's not periodization either it's just progression it's just a linear progression from a to z that's why my course is called acl rehab from a to z z to me is a collision athlete that has to decelerate rapidly and absorb massive amounts of force that's z if told someone told me if you said carmen i've torn my acl can you please rehab me i'd like to return to jogging 
I would say, Justin, there is no honor in jogging. No, I wouldn't say that to you. I would say, <laughs> I will return you to O. Does that make sense? So it's A to O for the jogging client. Yeah. A to Z is a different client. And so we've got all this research, not really being clear on what is the task that this person has to get back to. And then, so we're going to do hop testing with the person that wants to be able to jog. We're going to do hop testing with the person that wants to break change direction and absorb contact as a linebacker. Is that the same thing? Right? No. So it's, it's super important that therapists understand the different demands of sport from the lens of mechanical load. You know, and if you haven't played these sports, that's mm. fine. But at least as an SNC or a therapist, get out there and do the drills to understand like, wow, if I sprint in a straight line for 20 yards and then put the brakes on and then cut at a 90 degree angle, that's pretty hard compared to sprinting for five yards and doing the same cut. Oh, okay. Now, but I, I'm not being like a jerk here, but... Now we can, oh, oh, now we want to do like a, a hook pattern, right? Like 180 degree cut. Like that's really common in soccer. Athlete runs forward, plants their outside foot, and then has to redirect their, their movement 180 degrees back the same direction they came. The forces on that are much higher than mm -hmm. a 45 degree cut, right? Linear speed, like all the track people out there that think that it's like running in a straight line is is god's gift to performance good for you but again i i, I if the person only does like 45 degree cuts in their sport that's gonna help but if they have to be able to you know completely change direction and in basketball i mean they're changing yeah. direction every one to three seconds yep. basketball is the ultimate form of change of direction and reacceleration. So, and to order to reaccelerate, you have to decelerate. So, there's very little little linear speed. The only thing that I love about linear speed coaching is this idea of it happening somewhat in the sagittal plane, and that when we do teach change of direction well, we are teaching athletes to refine the sagittal plane as quickly as possible because that's where they can generate the most power and where there's less aberrant forces on the knee. If you come out of a pro agility, right? Like uh, on that first cut, so you're running to the, well, you're kind of shuffling crossover and then you cut and you head back to run the 10 yards. Yeah. What you're doing is you're trying to redirect the body to find the sagittal plane. Yep. And that right away, if you took a quick screenshot of that, that is acceleration, linear speed acceleration for like two steps, yeah. right? Three steps. So I think there's merit. Like I still teach the mechanics of sprinting to athletes that need to sprint, but I don't throw all my eggs over there. That's a component of what I'm teaching. Um, and then I, again, you, if you teach from a place of principle, this is where you're going to use this movement strategy in these patterns and these patterns and these patterns, then it, you know what? It makes sense to the athletes too. Like it's easier to sell. Like if you try to convince an old lineman that they need to run like repeat tempo hundred meters. And I've seen these kinds of programs, like they don't want to do that. No. 
No, it's a long distance. 100 meters is like, for them, it's like a 10K for me. <laughs> now, are you... <clears throat> Are you breaking your field and weight room days apart? Is that what has been recommended the most in the literature that you've seen? Are you combining days based off of facilities and availability of the athlete? Or what is your optimal world of how you like to go about working with people in their return to play? That's a great question. There's nothing in the literature that really has definitive conclusions around um, sort of a microcycle model. I think we need to look at as opposed to energy systems, we need to look at forces. So when you're doing activities that have the highest levels of force, and they tend to be activities with heavy eccentric work, um, like rapid eccentric work, I would put those on the same day. So let's say it's Monday, and then Tuesday would be maybe some core work, some tempo type work. I do for ACL rehab, one of my secrets that I'm going to share with your audience is I do kettlebell swing protocols very early on. As soon as the athlete can stand bilaterally with even weight distribution, they're kettlebell swinging to the yin yang. Okay. Like we're talking 10 swings on 20 seconds off for like 20 minutes straight. You do the math on that. Hundreds of reps, hundreds. Yeah. And it's really good for reestablishing hamstring strength, glute posterior chain strength, low back. You don't have to do any of those, you know, dinky exercises like low back extensions. You could just do swings, lots of them heavy, right? So guys are swinging, um, 28, 32 kilo bell girls are swinging a 16, 20 kilo bell with one arm, but you could also do it with two, like whatever. If a guy has really broad shoulders, I, I would not advise a two hand swing. It's just, it's biomechanically pretty tough get them doing a one arm but girls can do a two hand swing so yeah on their on their energy system days because they can't run yet right it's tons of swings swing 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 um it restores hamstring function very little doms it's awesome reinforces the bilateral st squat stance. And then when they're ready, you can start loading them up. Like I've had athletes at four months post-op squatting one and a half times their body weight. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I've gotten away from barbell work simply because I bought a flywheel. And so the guys and girls that I'm training in my garage gym are using the flywheel as their stimulus for lower body bilateral strength and power. But we still do cleans. You can do cleans as early as a month post-op, just muscle cleans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what one excites you more working with? Is it the, the combat athlete? Is it the basketball jumper? Like what, what's the one that you're like, all right, this, this is a, a, a new challenge. This is in my wheelhouse. This is the one that like, man, I, I love this. I tend to, because I came from team sport, Justin, like, like you did, I have a, an affinity for working with team sport athletes in general, like, you know, and they could be basketball, they could be football, they could be lacrosse, lacrosse athletes tend to have the best humor. Huh. Like so funny. It's ridiculous how funny these guys are. Yeah. And cutting. Oh, it's, they're, they're naughty. They're great. So lacrosse is, is, is lacrosse is fun. They're tough. Um, I spent a lot, a lot of my early days in pro hockey, actually. I worked yep. with, um, one time I remember losing the Canucks number one goalie on a hike. Oh yeah. I was like, where the hell is this Dan? He's gone. 
oh fuck you know, like, we were looking we were looking for him so yeah yeah i i like team sport athletes a lot because i think i can i can relate to them right like often their bigger fears on the return to play piece when we get into the psychology because that's a huge part that's mm. again not not focused on enough at least in the research um but i'm sure there's lots of people out there doing good work in that area but like psychologically team sport athletes when they're returning to play their biggest fear when you sit down and talk to them is letting their teammates down Ooh. you know and i i can re i relate to that because i have a certain like level of anxiety and paranoia that fuels me on a day-to-day -day basis of letting people down like for example <laughs> me talking to you right now i'm then the back of my mind, I'm thinking to myself, I'm hoping I'm helping people that are listening to your show. And if I'm not, I feel like a loser. That's my, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, first of all, I don't no, think that's, I... yeah, no, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think they're no, getting value that's from my... this. No, yeah, yeah, yeah that's I hear you. My, I hear you. I hear you. Seriously, yep. like my, my fear and I, I love being a team player. I do. And I, and so to me, that's super fun right? Just to be around a bunch of like-minded people. So I tend to find, I left combat sport a few years ago and to um, never return. Yeah. Combat sports are, are a different animal for sure. Yeah, they are. They're, they're not for me. That's all I'll say. Not for me. Mm -hmm. What still drives you? What still fuels you after all the time and like you said you've been doing it for so long and you've worked with so many sports like Coffee. it would be Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> but like no what's... but fair yeah what is it like i mean you've been doing it for a while you've worked with a lot of different athletes a lot of pro athletes like you could just be like you know what i'm kind of done like this is like what is it that's a good point i'm done you know, maybe I'm just quitting. You know what? I'm just, after today, <laughs> Sorry, the, I, the light bulb is on and I'm done. Yeah, Thank you, you. you put an idea in my head. Hey, maybe I should stop. What I've done is I've tapered the amount of coaching I do over the years. So um, I used to spend, you know, 20, 30 hours a week coaching. Um, and I think every young coach needs to do that. That's where you build your skill set, right? And then after you've spent five or 10 years 30 hours a week actually coaching people you can start to taper back so i i hold kind of a membership um offering with my services so meaning people are a member of what i do and 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 therefore i only take on a certain amount of clients at everyone at any one time then i can be really really dialed on managing their their case but what fuels me is just seeing other people accomplish what they set out to do their goals you know it's i mean it sounds super cliche but if you if you spend your whole life focused on yourself and trying to you know all the self-help stuff that's out there all that messaging you'll be miserable like one of the key facets of happiness is to help other people and help empower other people and it gives me a lot of like satisfaction and then it also gives me really good material for lectures. If I'm teaching at the university to talk to my students about certain cases that I've worked with, I do enjoy the rehab, the return to play, um, because it's really high pressure. I like that. Bring it on. Um, it's a challenge. It's like, can I do this? Um, can I get this kid back and have them not 
get re-injured. And I have in my career of 25 years, um, I haven't had that happen yet. And I say yet because I'm not naive. Shit can happen. And I, when I say not, hasn't happened in a non-contact setting, right? Like co a contact ACL trauma is not preventable to use that naughty word, right? It's if someone lands on your knee and they have, and they weigh 300 pounds, it's probably going to break. You talked about, <clears throat> I mean, I, first of all, I agree with you on that. There's, yeah, there's, there's nothing to prevent that injury unless you just low level, let somebody get cut blocked and into it and you know, not going to happen. You've been educating right. the next wave of strength coaches and you've been seeing them because being lectures and what is the biggest gap? And that's what we're, that's what we believe at strength coach network that we're doing. We're bridging the gap from what is taught in the classroom to what actually happens in the weight room, because, you know, we feel like there's a gap. How mm -hmm. big is that gap? How, like, how are you able to, to close it with your, you know, the people that you work with and, and what can us coaches look and continue to mentor the younger generation of coaches with? It's a great question. I think some of the gaps in the, in a in a university setting, I don't want to speak for my university because they have me and, and I'd like to think I am bridging a, a pretty good gap, but you know, but we're not perfect because we often have big classes and that's problematic in of itself. If you have a lab of 40 students, you can't have 40 students in squat racks um, that are novices and one teacher. Like y y you can imagine that situation and that's terrifying, right? So it's like having a bunch of ninth graders in a weight room, you know, <laughs> and I work with ninth graders at a high school every winter. They're awesome, by the way. But yeah, usually I'm screaming kill you anyway um so that that in of itself just the structure of how university is taught is a barrier right because you've got a big class and even a bad ratio so what we do with our students is we get them set up with in practicums or with the performance staff at the university they hold like a like an internship and they'll take a bunch of students that are interested in the performance piece a lot of students nowadays in my opinion, are less interested in high performance and more interested in like health, wellness, um, gen pop, clinical. So that's another another thing too, right? A lot of undergraduate programs in kinesiology are trying to cover every population. So it's not really until grad school that students are highly specialized. And I want to work with athletes. I want to work with clinical like cancer patients or stroke rehab. So you have to understand that a lot of university programs are not just centered. I mean, some are, but a lot are not just centered on high performance. So, you know, we can criticize these programs all we want, but they, they're not, they're not delivering good strength coaches, but that's because they're trying to teach a very broad palette of, of information. And hopefully the, what the students are getting and every university teacher will say this, this ability to critically think well what does that mean right so i define it in first year because it's in the textbook i wrote you know what does it mean to be a skeptic and we go through a whole chapter on like looking at Can you at... be skeptical on what it means to be yeah. A skeptic? yeah exactly 
So, you know, just challenging the status quo, learning how to, like we teach the students right away in first year that, you know, if you're looking for information, probably go to a, a lit review or a meta-analysis first, because that synthesizes all the information that, in that topic. And then there might be some studies that are within that analysis that you want to look deeper at. So we do teach the students that, and then that way that they can find good information. Now, that's assuming that the research yeah. is full of the stuff you and I do. Well, I'll tell you right now that there is no study that I have found, and I reviewed last weekend over 500. Um, it sounds like it's a lot, but it's not because I have a system, so I did it pretty quickly. But I reviewed 500 studies to look for a comprehensive exercise-based return-to-play program for ACL. There's nothing. So that's why I decided to start my course, ACL Return to Sport Rehab course. It's an online course. I start tomorrow, the first cohort, cohort to teach them. These are the exercises you want people to be doing at each stage of rehab and that rehab shouldn't even be timeline-based because everybody's different. Everybody adapts at different rates. Like if you had a group of freshmen in your weight room, Justin, would they all adapt exactly the same at the same rate? Nope. No. Right. So how can we, so could you imagine putting a timeline on your freshman to hit, to hit a two times body weight front squat? Could you do that? Could you put a timeline on that? No, okay, but so I would, why are we, you know, why are we doing that in research? I would say that insurance companies, I would say that insurance companies for the return to play and then the surgeons mm -hmm. that perform the surgeries, they're the ones that want to just, that is my initial response. Taking a quick break from the show to talk to you guys about our sponsor, Team Builder. If you have any online training platform needs, Team Builder is the go-to place. Team Builder has the ability to integrate with velocity-based training tools. They have the ability to program and have notes and videos for all of your athletes and your clients. This is your number one stop shop. Been using it since 2019 when I was working at Towson. So I've used it, love it. Make sure you check it out. Go ahead, click the link down in the description. And with that, let's get back to the show. You're absolutely right. We can play that game with the insurance companies and we can we can write our reports with that, but that's not necessarily how we're going to practice. And that's unfortunate. Correct. You know, so with with universities and with preparing your audience, new strength and conditioning coaches, you're not going to learn how to coach exercise very well at school. Sure. You're going to learn about prescription of exercise. That's easy. Anyone can write a program. That's easy. Coaching is the hard part. And and I'm not saying you need to go and start taking leadership training courses and communication courses. I'm talking about knowing precisely what the criteria is for optimal movement. It's within a frame too. It's not like a dot, like on a bullseye. It's It's a frame. That's optimal. And then knowing how far away this person is from optimal, and then you have to figure out how to get them here by using pedagogical strategies, just teaching, right? Proper progressions and a good understanding of motor learning, how people learn. And it's not all about cueing. I know that a lot of people think that if I externally cue, magic shit is going to happen. It doesn't. I internally cue all the time. You know, and it, and I know the kids I work with, 
know how to do know how to do things well because what'll happen is I'll send them off to say somebody else and they'll coach them and like when I sent one kid to to Chris when he was at SFU he was like Carm like this kid moves like a genius like he moves so well good job I'm like of course he does <laughs> you know no I didn't say that <laughs> I was I was yeah you know like I've spent time with him I've coached him right or I take um my buddies guys that are at the other university and if I'm prepping them for some combine stuff um I, I usually when I have Joe's athletes they all move like really well really well like okay do this and I'll make them do a drill they've never done before but because they understand movement from a place of concept and a place of principle than all this other stuff but we tend to teach from like this other stuff do this drill do this drill how about what are the commonalities in the movement between all five of these drills and just teach that and then they'll be able to do all five of these drills that's what pedagogy is and it's a lot movement is a lot more simple than people are making it seem like on the internet it's not complicated it, it you know and, and you just need to spend time coaching people and guess what you're going to make mistakes you're going to ask them to do things you're going to say hey well try it like this and you'll be like oh no never mind don't do that you know and, and but that's okay there's there's some trial and error but that's what's you that's what university is typically missing and i also think universities need to do more oral exams so I do an oral lab exam in my course. What's that look like? So, uh, so the students have three stations and, um, one station is like an intake process, like the interview process with the initial client could be an athlete, could be, you know, and then they move to my station where they, um, from a laundry list of like 50 different tests, they'll have to do three. So they have to memorize the protocols for every single test. Mm -hmm. And then the third station is movement. So they have to coach their, cause they're in partners. They have to coach their partner on like a squat, a deadlift, a lunge, a pull, a push or a rotational exercise. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's no joke. So what are the tests that they can choose from for the, the different protocols? Okay. So the, the test could be anywhere from a YMCA cycle ergometry submaximal aerobic test to a ACL return to play um, single leg squat qualitative test to a shoulder range of motion goniometer test to a shoulder range of motion qualitative test. You know, the one where you're just laying on your back, you flatten your low back, you bring your arm like that test that might be on it. Um, hamstring length, um, the Thomas test for hip flexor length. So we cover, each lab covers a different component. We'll do a mobility lab. We'll do a strength lab. We'll do a power lab. You read my mind. Cause I was like, that sounds yeah. like there could be a, like, could somebody only pick the mobility? You're like, no, no, no. You need a mobility, a strength, and then a, you know, conditioning. Exactly. So each lab, like last night was our first week of the term. So it's all intake in lab one. So we do resting vitals. I think athletes should have their blood pressure taste testing. Okay, all you strength coaches that love these isometric mid-thigh pull, um, scared dog butt uh, drill, did you test their blood pressure before you had them do these things, right? Like we can't assume nowadays that every athlete is healthy. 
I also so, want to test resting heart rate because I think that's your easiest way to prove that you've improved their absolutely. conditioning right there. Like, 100%. If they're over 60 BPM and they're a soccer player, then they got some work to do. So we do resting heart rate. Yeah, resting blood pressure. We do some girth measurements just so they understand like how to do those. Um, because that's for gen pop. That's lab one. Lab two, we do movement screening. And I have a whole bunch of different movement screens and we criticize them. We we don't just do FMS. We do a few different ones. Um, and then lab three, we measure uh, balance and core trunk endurance. And we do a little bit on is there, what is core stability? Is this a thing? Like, how do we measure it? And we what, we, what the students learn is that they can't eat. There's no way to measure core stability. There's no way. There's no test for core stability. Yet every therapist says, well, that person lacks core stability. And then I'll say, well, how did you measure that? I always say, how that. do you know? Their glutes but are you weak. And we I put know them on a table if... and we push their leg down. Exactly. But you and I know if someone lacks core stability, if we're watching them change direction. Yeah. Like if they're they're moving like, you know, like jello, like a bag of milk, we know that we've got some work to do, right? So you're of my generation, so you know what a bag of milk is. The younger people will be like, milk used to come in a bag? Oh. Yeah, dudes. It used to come in a bag. You used to have to cut <laughs> the end off and stick it in a Tupperware container. Google that shit. Okay, so... But we can see that, right? We can see that's just overall lack of strength. Then we do um, some maximal aerobic speed testing in another lab. We do submaximal aerobic testing and predicted testing in another lab. We do a mobility lab and flexibility lab. We do an ACL return to play lab and we criticize all the hop testing. <laughs> we do an agility change of direction lab. And I'm missing one. I can't remember it. So those are you... all the labs we cover. How do you do that yeah. in a non-only sterile, clean <clears throat> lab way, like on field for your, yeah. your team sport athletes? Like, how do, you, how do you do that? And how do you recommend it for our listeners? <clears throat> like when you're going to go and you're going to test athletes? Or yeah, like how do you actually, because that's been one of the biggest things for me. And that's why I was trying and continuing to learn with the PhD and doing the research. Like, how can we take these concepts? Because like you said, okay the research that I was reading for the dissertation was, Hey, we're going to do our loaded jumps on either a Smith machine or our unassisted jumps with these massive bungee equipment that people don't have. And it's like, how can we bring mm. this to the masses where coaches can actually do it and can understand qualitatively what to do. So how do you go about recommending that and how do you teach it to your class? Yeah, I think that's a great point because not everybody has access to, like you say, facilities and force plates. And for the longest time in my lab, we just got force plates and I just started using them, you know, this, this summer. Okay. So what did we do? And this, and there are a lot of things that clinicians and strength coaches can do using 2D camera analysis. So I, I actually have a tutorial video on how to do that in my membership portal on my on my website. So that's a bit of a plug. Sorry yep. about that. But well, there, no, there don't is be sorry. We're going to add the link there, there below. Yeah. There is a way to do um, good high-level testing that can give you some good information about how people are moving using using your phone. Using your phone. Okay. And obviously, you need to ask permission for your subjects. Can I film you? But I think what we need to get away with way from Justin is outcome testing. How fast did this kid run in the 40? How high did they jump? How far did they broad jump? 
unless we're actually preparing them for a combine, right, which in reality they are doing outcome tests, what we should be doing is determining what's limiting their performance. So why isn't somebody jumping 36 inches? Well, because they gain 20 pounds of body fat over the summer. One of the lowest hanging fruit for speed and power is body composition. Yeah. And not enough coaches, everyone's afraid to talk about that. Everyone's afraid to say, you're a little bit chubby, all right? <laughs> I went to Europe this summer. I had a great time. I lost weight. I wanted to lose weight, but it was so damn expensive to eat in London. I was like, all y'all, you're starving. Forget it. We're not eating today. We're going to walk for like the whole day. Okay. But it does, it does help. So we wanted like when we're screening and doing our intake, we want to start thinking about things like body comp. Why are we not thinking about, and I think you had a guy on recently that talked about muscle mass and lower body or something. Scott why Pohaska, are we not yeah. talking? Yeah. Why are we not talking more about muscle mass? I have a, <clears throat> a young girl that I'll probably work with who just had ACL surgery about four months ago basketball player super tall lanky you know basketball body yep um and is very under muscled for what her body needs to be able to do in that sport and we're not talking enough about look you need to put on some size you need to put on some muscle mass and how do how do athletes put on muscle mass how does that happen in your opinion they're gonna lift and they're gonna have some time under tension like yeah and is it comfortable putting on muscle no, is it as what about doing jumping? Is that's pretty comfortable, isn't it? No, not even a little. It's, it's comfortable putting yeah. on muscle. Is that comfortable? So why are we pulling kids away from things that are uncomfortable? Uh, yeah, we are doing a lot of that. We are, we are. That's, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, hearing you talk about it, like, okay, instantly, if you talk about <clears throat> the weight stuff, like, okay, if it's typically within sex, guy to guy, girl to girl, not as big of a deal, but it's a little yeah. taboo when you're. You know, when Kate, Kate was a the nutritionist strength coach for us and she would have no problem like talking to the guys cause she had a great personality, but as a guy yeah. trying to talk to a girl about it, like it's, it's a little bit difficult and that's why you have to learn how to, to manage that yes. situation and truly just speak it. And they're like, Hey, this is not me saying anything about you as a person. However, you are carrying excess weight that is not contributing positively to what you are trying to do performance-based wise. So let's do the things that help us get rid of that or improve the strength. Mm -hmm. So do you think people are shying away from that conversation then? The, the male strength coach to the female athlete, they're avoiding and shying away from that conversation. I can't so prove it, but I job. think so. I do. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Years ago, I did a talk uh, at Oregon State. 2009, I went down there and did a talk. I remember Nick was there, uh, Winkleman. He and I both did a did talk at a state clinic and what I talked, my talk was called to battle or to bond, which was a talk for strength coaches to work with female athletes versus male athletes. And you obviously don't want to come into the female locker room with, you know, a million solutions and identifying all their problems. Like nobody should do that anyway, right off the bat, because you need to establish rapport. But once you've established rapport, with an athlete, however many sessions that takes, and you sit down with them to go through their testing results, you can ask them powerful questions instead of being the person to bear the bad news. You can ask them, what do you think would improve your vertical jump performance? Let's just use that as an example, because that's a strength to weight ratio yeah. test, right? What do you think 
do you think that there's a relationship between um, body composition and power? What are your thoughts on that? And just get them talking. A lot of times athletes will identify precisely what you're after. And then you ask them, do you, would you like some help finding a solution to that? Because I'd love to help you. That's some black belt thinking right there. That's right? also, and, but that's parenting right there. That is, like, you know, it really, it really is parenting. Like it's, as you were you know, talking, I'm like, man, it. I kind of do that with the kid. Like when they're yelling yeah. and they're indoors, I'm like, are we indoors? Or are we outdoors? We're indoors. Exactly. So should we use our versus inner voice yelling, or outdoor versus voice? saying, stop yelling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You've got to get them thinking about their thinking. That's called metacognition. So if you can get people to think about their thinking and think about their actions, I don't know what that's called. Um, then they can arrive at the solution and to their problem themselves. And it becomes their idea. People are naturally resistant to feedback, Justin. We all are. Like if you said, Carmen, I don't like your shirt because it says, I wore it on purpose. It says board. Yeah. I don't like your top. I would immediately take offense to that. I wouldn't show it. I would take offense and I would be like, I'm going to wear this shirt anyway. Right. So people are naturally averse to, to unsolicited feedback. So in order to bridge into that gap, you need to start asking powerful questions and a powerful question simply means it's fairly open-ended. It's non-threatening and it gets the person thinking about their thinking. And sometimes they don't come up with the, the right answer right away, but you just kind of, just kind of drop it. And you just sort of leave it. You know, like, do you think that maybe X is related to Y? Or what do you think about the relationship between X and Y? Absolutely. Like, rather yeah, than me just, telling yeah. my athlete not to go back to sport at five months post-op, right? I didn't say, oh, what are you doing? Like, why are you going back to your sport? That's crazy, bro. Right? I was like, okay. Um, I'm curious if you're aware of the risks involved. Now, um, what do you think those are? Okay. All right. He says it out loud. He knows he's taking ownership. Um, so I told him, I said, so what my role is going to be in this situation is I'm going to support your hope. And if something happens, I'm going to support you no matter what. No judgment. Because there's a part of me that really gets him. Like I played, I played sports until I was 40. Um, not at a super high level. I played varsity softball, got caught from the team because I couldn't hit fair. I have like the worst eyesight ever. So after that, I continued to play softball for fun. I played basketball all the way um, in a, like a pretty competitive co-ed league up until I was about 30. And then I started playing football, like football at 30. And I was like, this sport is, this shit's bananas because I can run out to dribble the damn thing. And I played and played and played. And I remember having my son and then I returned to football. I had a C-section. I returned to flag football at four months after I had my son. I ripped a hole in my groin. I threw on some core shorts and kept fucking playing because I loved it so much. And these were my girls. These were like my friends. There was nothing more relaxing for me on a Saturday was having played a game 
and it's sunny out and the wind is blowing. It's fall. There's leaves on the ground and I'm having a beer with my teammates and there, like there's, there was just not a better feeling. And I was chasing that, you know? And so, yeah, I have a mesh in my groin now because of it. And I've had a few hernias repaired, but honestly, was it worth it? hundred percent honey pee. That's what the youngins say. The ute. Honey pee. <laughs> honey pee. <laughs> Honey pee. H U N N Y. Oh, hun- yeah, yeah. Keep it. Honey pee, like hundred percent. Yeah, I thought I thought you meant honey, like the the food. No, like the the I'm sweetener. Yeah, I'm losing it. No, it's okay. I'm clearly losing it too. So, yeah, I I get it. You know, and back to your question around like why do I do this? It's because I I get it. I know like that there's gems in there, even though like it's a grind. Playing sports at a high level is a grind, but there are moments that are that outshine the grind so much that mm. it's so worth it and i and 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 when you're young and your body's young why not chase that amen right? I don't like think they there's... just canceled the football program at my university and i i little i've shed tears over that decision you know that's that's there's some i know how shattered these young men are <clears throat> i can only imagine devastating I can yeah. only imagine, and I, I think your your point about um, chasing those moments that help outweigh the other things, that's a great place to to end this, to respect the fact that you are going to go be a mom and take your, your son to school, but you've talked about it. We're going to link it down below, but just, again, a uh, quick little, again, plug for the ACL cohort and courses and, and things that you got. So where can people find oh, that? Thanks, Justin. Yeah, I... Um... I decided based on all of this work and, and research to, to put together a course and after some deliberation decided to offer it online because people can't obviously always come to where I am at and because we have such great capability with technology now to offer even video analysis online, um, decided to do that. So the first cohort sold out quite quickly. Um, and it starts tomorrow. So I will be offering the second cohort in the new year. And it's eight weeks long. It's uh, an hour, hour and a half lecture each week, homework assignments, some readings, nothing crazy. Um, it's not a summary of all the research. I promise it is actionable, practical. This is what you want to be focused on early stage rehab. This is what we want to focus on mid stage. This is what we want to focus on late stage. A to Z, meaning Z is taking an athlete all the way to black diamond skiing or decelerating and absorbing contact. That would be the the czar of performance when it comes to knee rehab. However, people that work with athletes in other sports where they may not need to harness those forces will still benefit from the course. It just means that the exit criteria, the discharge criteria would happen a little bit sooner. Um, yeah, so that's that. And then if people are just interested in learning more about, um, change of direction, coaching and plyometrics, I have a membership portal on my website that pretty much is, is, is three main topics, repeat sprint ability, change of direction and plyometrics and mental skills training. Cause those are my areas of expertise. It's 19 bucks a month. People can can sign in onto the portal and, and access all of those webinars as well as um, I have a crib section, Cribs. right? It's called the crib. Yeah, um, I am a hip hop star in on the side. That's what I do on Saturdays. So 
in the crib is uh, a bunch of cheat sheets. So we all need cheat sheets as practitioners, right? So it's just like stuff people can just download, put on their office wall and be like, how do I do? Oh yeah, there's the prescription. Bam. Okay. Because I want them focused on coaching. Amen. Not writing programs. Well, thank That's you very it. much for your time. Thanks, you go about the rest of your day and uh, have an awesome Wednesday. Thank you. You as well. Bye. That was awesome. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you, Justin.